Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Two weeks ago, we talked about um, making godly decisions and how we use scripture as a filter for some of those decisions. We also talked about fasting which was not everybody's favorite thing in the world, especially because we bring donuts here. That'd be great, right? Like it's kind of contradictory. We'll work on that. Um, but uh, we also talked about um, submitting, following, following the Lord um, and not our flesh, following the spirit and not the flesh, God's spirit, and putting our things in front of God, our decisions that we're trying to make in front of him so that he can, um, that so he can guide us and direct us on the things he wants us to do and not to do. Last week, we talked about Um, the heart of obedience. So when the Lord gives you some direction about something you don't want to do or something that you that you want to do, um, whenever he gives those directions, our heart should be that of responding, not of what do I get out of it, but there's an obedience factor and that he is the greatest reward. So if you walk with the Lord for any length of time, you are going to get to this next step. We're going to take one more step in this kind of uh, these three steps of these past three weeks. If you walk for the, with the Lord for any length of time, you are going to get to the point where you have obediently done exactly what he said, and it's going to put you in a place that is not fun at all. You are not going to like it. There's going to be pressure for you. It's going to seem like it's the opposite direction of where you thought you were headed. And there is going to be these moments in your life when you're following the Lord, that you're going to say, I don't like where he led me. And in those moments, this message is meant to remind you, the title of the message is that God put you here. He put you here. <clears throat> We're going to take a look in the book of Philippians, say chapter one. We're only read um, nine scriptures today. But before we do that, what I want to do is I want to give you a quick little background on the book of Philippians. Now, if you were with us way back in October, um, you might recognize some of these things as a little bit of a review point for you. But if you weren't, we're going to catch everybody up about what's going on here in this book of Philippians. Okay, so the first line in your notes there, the book of Philippians is written to the church in the city of Philippi. It is not written to Philip. (laughs) It is written to the church in the city of Philippi, P-H-I-L-I. P-P-I, one L, two P's, just in case you're wondering, <clears throat> and is located in the, in the modern area, the northern area of, Gr- of Greece, which we would refer in our modern day and time as Greece, okay? Philippi was named after Philip of Macedonia. He is the father of Alexander the Great. A little Jeopardy trivia there for you. I found it interesting, so I passed it along to you. And the Roman Empire um, spans several hundred years as the most powerful empire on the planet. But one of the things that I did not know about the Roman Empire is that they were master road builders. That's the next line of your note, road builders. Um, they graded and paved roads in those ancient times to make personal and commercial transport easier than any other time before in history. So one of the major roadways that they constructed, so these roadways were, were stone, and they were made by hand, and they were at least 25 to 30 feet wide, and um, they were as long as they wanted them to be to connect two areas. Well, one of the largest areas that they ever connected through these, through these paved roads was called the Ignatian Way. It's the next line in your notes. I'll spell it for you real quick. E-G-N-A-T, 
I-A-N, Ignatian Way. <clears throat> now, this, this, one, this one road that they built was 700 miles long. So think of that. There's no, that is a chore to pave a road today with technology and trucks and cars and asphalt pressure, you know, things and the painters. That, that is a chore today. And if you're trying to wrap your head around how long 700 miles is, it is if you drive from here to L.A., go to the Staples Center parking lot, which is the home of the 16-time world champion and soon-to-be 17-time <laughs> world champion Los Angeles, Los Angeles Lakers that they win this year. Um, sorry, I, did, I, did, I got off track there for a second. Um, and then spend nine hours in traffic, you know, trying to get out of downtown L.A. And then drive back. So driving over there and back is about 700 miles. That's how long this particular roadway was in, um, in Italy. So I am a, uh, I'm going to try to kick this on here and show you a quick picture. I am a, a plain, vanilla, um, boring, uh, grossly white guy from the South, right? Like I am there. I, I tell my wife all the time that I'm, I'm so thankful she married me because she's the spice in my life. You know, um, so if I'm a good see, I'm a meat and potatoes guy, so I'll give you an illustration. Um, if I am a if I am a big old a good pot, but a but if I am a, a a thing of mashed potatoes, creamy, good, wholesome, gonna be at the marriage supper of the lamb in heaven, mashed potatoes. That's just me. I'm just plain old mashed potatoes. Nina puts the salt and the pepper and the butter and the cream and the bacon and the cilantro and all the other spices and stuff. And uh, that's just her being next to me. You know what I mean? That just kind of oozes off of her. So I'm, I, I need some flavor. I got some. Thank you, God. And uh, she's, she's responsible for that. But when I, was, when I was talking about the Ignatian way, you know, my plain vanilla self starts to wonder, uh, I wonder if this word Ignatian means anything like Ooh, it's kind of like it's Italian. You know what I mean? Like I know pasta, but that's all I know from uh, uh, you know Italy. So it's Italian. So when I looked it up, Ignatian Way means nothing. It it is the last name of the government official who oversaw the road being built. So anticlimactic there for me. But anyway, um, this is actually a picture of the Ignatian Way a few years ago. It still exists today. This is another picture of it along a countryside. Look at every one of those stones that had to be placed by hand that is still there 2,000 years after it was built, more than 2,000 years after it's built. They actually extended it over small bodies of water, these little creeks and streams. that These pictures are from uh, 2011, 2012, so not too long ago in the grand scheme of things. Um, but... It still is in existence, and you can walk on the Ignatian Way today. And this, via Ignatia, these are stones that are along the pathway that, that show that it's still, it's, you know, they still kept the name, obviously, boring, but they kept the name, and uh, these are along the pathway to let people know they're on the Ignatian Way. Now, I don't know if you remember geography back in, uh, in high school or middle school or college or wherever it was that you might have learned it, but this is a picture of like the Mediterranean Sea, right? So Jerusalem and Israel's way down here. And this is Rome way up here. So this blue line all the way at the top, that's the Ignatian Way. Look how long that road is. All the way from 
there's a ship that went across here. So it connected Italy and the, Rome, and the hub of the Roman Empire all the way to Asia and everywhere in between. What in the world does the Ignatian Way have to do with the book of Philippians? If you look right in the middle, at the very top of the screen, you'll see the city of Philippi. It was a major city along the route. This is a major trade route. It's a major commercial route. It's a major private route for people to travel back and forth and to sell goods. It is a major hub along the Ignatian Way. So as people were doing business and they were visiting other family members that may have known, they stop in, in Philippi and they get the message of the gospel and it literally becomes an artery to, fill the, to, to take the gospel message out to two different opposite areas of the world. It's amazing, right? You can also see Thessalonica right here, Thessalonians, Corinth right here, Corinthians, Ephesus right here, Ephesians. So Paul was all up in here. Paul actually walked the Ignatian way when he was planting the church in Philippi. It's amazing, huh? <clears throat> it's amazing. So what, what uh, theologians and historians tell us is that the church in Philippi was one of the earlier churches that Paul planted. So it was early in his ministry, so he had a real big heart for these people. You know, when you do something for the first time, you're like, oh, man, I do this one, man, this is great. And you kind of have a lot of memories as you're trying to build something. This was kind of what the church in Philippi was to Paul. They were very big supporters of his. They would send him parchment papers to write on. They would send him coats in the winter. And they would just try to help him because they were so grateful that the gospel had been preached to them through him. Okay, That's the backdrop of what we're about to read. So Paul has refused to stop preaching the gospel. The Roman, the Roman, uh, not the Roman army, but the Roman government has told him, stop preaching the gospel. He says no, and they throw him in prison. From prison in Rome, he writes the words we are about to read. Philippians 1, verses 12 and through 14, and then we'll skip down to 20 and 26. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped spread the good news. For everyone here in prison, including the whole palace guard, we're going to come back to that, so remember that, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Let's go down to verse 20. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better, dying or living. I'm torn between these two desires. I long to go be with Christ which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he's doing through me. There's a lot going on here 
in this small nine-verse passage that we just read. <clears throat> but there are three things that I believe Paul understands about where he is that will apply to us as Christian believers, followers of Christ today. And I want to go over those three, three things today in our, in our time together. Number one, God put you here on purpose. God put you here on purpose. Let's read verse 12 again. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that happened to me here has helped spread the good news. There is very little doubt that Paul took a massive beating before he was thrown into prison. Very little doubt. The prisons in Rome were notorious for being utterly disgusting. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Alcatraz or if you've had a chance to see any videos or pictures of Alcatraz, but I got to go there several years ago. And, and you got to you know, walk around and, you know, with the headphones and they kind of tell you stories about how it was developed and what happened there and got to sit in a cell for a little bit you know, and it was just kind of realize the magnitude of the, the men that were kept there. But Alcatraz was eventually shut down because the United States government moved away from trying to punish prisoners to, with the punishment, rehabilitate them. Doesn't always work, but that was the goal, right? So they actually shut down Alcatraz because it was specifically for punishment. It was specifically designed for punishment and no rehabilitation. Well, we could say today, that's a good thing. Help people get back on their feet and get back into society, right? But Rome had no concern of that. Their whole thing was, I'm going to punish you for not doing what we want you to do. So they would, if they didn't obey the guards, we're going to throw you into prison. And everybody knew how notoriously bad the prisons were. They were rat infested. They were insect infested. There are some historians that, that give accounts of the, of the prisoners having to use the bathroom on the floor in the corner of their own cell. So you can imagine the stench that's going on there. You can imagine that this is a utterly disgusting environment for him to be in, but Paul views his circumstance as positive. Next line in your notes. He's been beaten. He's in this horribly disgusting place, but he views his circumstance as positive. Why? The next line in your notes. Paul knows this truth in his heart. It's very important. God know, or Paul knows this truth in his heart. God allowed him to be in prison on purpose. God allowed him to be in prison on purpose. Here's what I mean. He followed the Spirit of God's direction to go and plant churches in all those areas we just saw on the map. He followed his direction to go do that. And at following God's direction, he was obedient and still wound up in this disgusting, horrible prison. He understands that God allowed him to be there. Now, you may look at me and be like, Matt, come on, man. God allowed him to go to prison for obeying here? Yep. God didn't step in and kind of put somebody else in prison and swap places like his enemy? Nope. This is what God does? Yep. 
well, how is that good? We're about to find out. But this is the character of God throughout Scripture. God does this with his children multiple times on purpose. Let me take you back to the Old Testament. Everybody remember the story about um, the children of Israel being in, enslaved in Egypt and Moses leading them out? If you don't know that story, just rent the Prince of Egypt animated movie tonight, and it's not all right, but you get the gist of it You know, when you get home. It's on Disney+, Plus, I'm sure. <coughs> um, it's an advertisement that I don't get paid for. <laughs> what am I doing? Um, but... But Moses is leading them out. There's a cloud of there's a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night that leads them through the direction they're supposed to go. Okay. <clears throat> so what I want to do is real quickly, let's read um, Exodus 14 verses one through four, because something happens. So they're leaving Egypt. They're going kind of north to the promised land, to Canaan, supposed to be going to what we know as modern day Israel. That's where they're supposed to be going. But Exodus 14, verse 1 through 4, they're on their way. They've left. They, uh, three million people, by the way, have just walked out of Egypt. The entire population of the city of Houston walking somewhere. Think about how that went. Carrying kids and things and donkeys and horses and all the kinds of things they wanted to take with them as possessions. Walking through the desert. Okay. On the way to Canaan, Exodus 14, verses 1. Through four. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to turn back. So don't go north anymore. Turn back and camp by hard word between Migdal and the sea. <laughs> camp there along the shore across from Baal Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused and they are trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. Okay? He told them to stop going the direction they were going in and turn back. Let me show you one more picture here. Actually, two more real quick. To give you an idea of what this looks like. <clears throat> so this right here, the picture of Egypt. Here's the Red Sea, Suez Canal, Saudi Arabia. So up there where it says Dead Sea at the top, that's kind of the direction they're supposed to be going. They'll be going up there to, to Canaan, to the Promised Land. Here's where they leave. And then as they're walking, God says, uh-uh, don't go up there. Come down this way, which is the opposite way of where they're supposed to be going. And then they keep walking in this nonsensical direction. And then the Egyptians think they're, that they're just lost in the desert. Okay? See this little yellow box right here? It says crossing site. This is a zoomed-in picture of it. Okay? This is where... It's believed they crossed in this direction. And all of this is mountains, except for these little white, little squiggly little line right here. See that? That's the walkway through the mountain. So do you see why the Egyptians thought, oh my gosh, 
They have no clue what they're doing. Change their mind and go back to get them as captives. God put them in this terrible scenario. And there's video of people driving down this way. There is nothing there. Mountains on both sides. Josephus kind of gives us an idea of what this looks like as well, the historian. And here they're walking this whole way, three million people down this narrow little way. So this thing is probably just full of people before they hit the beach. He sends them and puts them there in this crazy way on purpose. He purposely led them in a way they were not going to wind up going. There's something profound going on here, okay? And I want us to catch this. The next line of your notes. God led his children temporarily in the opposite direction of their promise to accomplish something greater. There are times when you're going to follow what the Spirit of God is leading you, the direction He's leading you in, and you're going to go, this doesn't make any sense. I feel like my, my promise is over there, but why are you telling me go this way? I don't want to be here. I'm getting attacked. I look stupid. I'm wandering around the desert. This is nuts. But sometimes he makes you go in the opposite direction of your promise for a short time to accomplish something greater. God led Israel in a way to provoke an attack from the Egyptian army. <clears throat> He put them in position to be attacked by the Egyptians. Trip out on that. Here's the principle for us. If I am following where the Lord is leading, and I am in a place I don't like, next line of your notes, I am there on purpose. I am there on purpose. Number two. God put you here for a purpose. <clears throat> God put you here for a purpose. Philippians, we'll go back to verse 13, okay? For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly, boldly speak God's message without fear okay Praetor, the, the, these guys who are the palace guards that are referred to in verse 13 are called praetorian guards p-r-a-t-o-r-e-n praetorian guards now the praetorian guards were the basically a private army a special forces army that were completely at the direction of the roman emperor their whole goal was to protect the emperor and make sure that the Roman Empire was in existence as long as possible. <clears throat> These guys were serving in the palace. Sometimes they were consulted for some things. They were in, involved in these secret meetings, carrying out missions that couldn't be made public. They were the special forces team who were, who were giving, um, they, sometimes they were being confided in. They were in a position of heavy influence inside the palace. But, next line in your notes, members of the palace guard 
had to spend time as prison guards. Members of the palace guard had to spend time as prison guards. The prison in Rome that Paul was in meant, next on your notes, meant something very interesting. Ready? He was physically chained to the palace guard. So, Paul is in this prison. They're making sure he doesn't break out. So, these special forces guys who are serving in the palace have to spend time in prison, and they actually physically chain him together with a guard so he doesn't get out. Paul, in a certain sense, had a captive audience to preach the gospel to. Tell me another way that it would have been possible one-on-one for someone to witness and share the gospel with these highly influential soldiers and they would take that message in their heart when they left the prison to go serve in the position of influence in the palace. Do you see what's going on here? Can you imagine these guys chained to him, looking over his shoulder as he pens the words to these churches? They are literally there while he's writing scripture. They're sitting there while he talks to other prisoners and to them directly about the the impact and the influence that the hope of the gospel can make in their life. There's nothing that we can do on our own effort to reconcile us to God. It is only through faith in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, that we can be saved. He's sharing this message with this highly influential group of people, one at a time, hour after hour. God didn't just lead him there for no reason. He's been put there for a purpose. And on top of it, next line of your notes, in addition to preaching directly to the palace guards, Paul sees that many believers gained confidence to speak the, God's message without fear. The Romans put him in prison to try to shut everybody up. We're going to take your number one guy out here, throw him in jail, and we're going to do the same thing to you if you don't hush up with this message of the gospel. And because he went in there, everyone thought, if Paul can pay the price, I'm going to pay the price, and it emboldened them to go preach the gospel without fear. I've got a personal question that I wrote in your notes. I don't want you to answer now, but I want you to ask yourself later. If you're in a spot that you don't like and you don't want to be in, and that's kind of driving you crazy, let me ask you a question. Who are you inspiring with your obedience? You may say, well, I'm not really around a lot of people. Uh, do you work? Do your coworkers see the faithfulness to God's plan that you have? They may not know it just like that, but do they see that in your life? Do your kids, do your spouses, 
Does your family? Does your friends? Somebody around you is watching how you're dealing with a scenario that you really don't like, but God led you into. Maybe it's a decision you need to make. And you're obedient, and now you're down the line, and you're like, oh, man, this is turning out crazy. Somebody somewhere is watching your response to those things. Who are you inspiring with your obedience? Number three, last point for tonight. God put you here to accomplish his purpose. To accomplish his purpose. Let's go back to verse 23. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. I want you to know, next on your notes, a larger purpose is being accomplished past the point of my current situation. A larger purpose is being accomplished past the point of my current situation. Let me tell you a quick personal story as we're kind of, as we wrap up tonight. I, um... Uh, I moved to the valley from Florida in 1995. If you weren't born in that by in 1995, just stay quiet and don't mock me. Um, I'm not old, um, but we we moved here in 1995. Um, uh, me and Nina got married in 1999, and um, we've been here ever since. We spent a three-year window in Texas um, helping uh, some friends of ours plant a church, and we moved back here. And when I moved back here, I desperately needed a job. And I'll tell you the story in its entirety some other time. We don't have time for it tonight, but God really opened the door for me to have a job. Um, I spent most of those years in ministry, in some type of full-time or almost full-time ministry, um, almost 20-some years. And when we moved back, I was, um, it, it was, uh, Texas was an interesting situation. I'll just leave it at that. It didn't, it wasn't great. It, didn't, it wasn't very fun. Um, and, uh, so we came back here and, um, at the direction of what we feel like the Lord was asking us to do, we came back here and it was, um, uh, I was immediately offered, uh, two jobs at churches. And I was like, that's how the Lord works, right? When we get back in there. Nope. Because every time I considered going to work at those those facilities or those those churches or organizations, something inside me would just tighten up like no. And I knew enough about the situation I was in personally that I couldn't go take those jobs as much as I would have liked to and felt like, see, I landed on my feet after a crazy time over there and I can now, you know, not look bad or whatever, you know, like, so, and yes, people in the industry worry about that. So <laughs> we shouldn't, but we do. So I was working a job and I got into corporate America and it was a, just a miracle. A lady um, call, and called a friend of mine who called me and it was just a miracle how I got into this job in corporate America. And um, so my contract was for six months. This was in 2011. 
I was like, bam, six months. God will kind of heal me up a little bit. Maybe I'll learn something from this last three years of experience, and I'm going to roll back out into the ministry, and everything's going to be good. Uh, last Tuesday was my eighth year anniversary at that job. Eight years. I remember writing some of my friends' emails. Can you help me figure out what God is doing here? Stay there until he says something to, to, tells you something different to do. I'm thankful for the job because it's providing for my family. It's putting a roof over our head and food on our table. But I don't really like this job. And every day I win, it just would irritate me worse and worse and worse. And I hated it. Here I am running around the country doing music, preaching, doing all these events, big old huge conferences, lights, camera, action, boom. You know, there's no YouTube back then or we'd been all over that. You know what I mean? Like we, we'd have been in trouble because we'd have been all over that. And we were just running around. We were having the time of our life. And then God goes, ah, I'm going to take you out of that. I'm going to drop you off in a job. I'm going to sit you at a cubicle in front of a laptop. And we're going to stay there. We're going to park it right there. After about two years, the weight and almost depression of having to go back to the same place every single day and do the same stinking thing and sit in the same chair and sit in the same uh, cubicle with the same people, I just sat there all the time and it would drive me crazy. There were days where I would park across the street in the parking lot and weep and beg God, let me out of here. Please, God, I, don't, I, can't, I cannot bring myself to drive through that little guard shack and walk up to the, my desk and sit there again. I can't take it. You're killing me. God would say nothing to me. I constantly, God, please get me out of here. Take me back to what my purpose is. Take me back to where I'm supposed to be. Let me go help people. Let me go preach. Let me go sing. Let me go do something, anything but this. Thank you for the provision. But man, can't you just work this out a different way? And I would sit there and cry every day for months before I'd walk into the office. Hated it. Didn't want to be there. Didn't want to talk to nobody. Didn't want to deal with anybody. Was just depressing. One day as I was complaining to the Lord, I said, this is terrible, this is killing me. And he said, yes, that's my goal. I said, to kill me? He goes, yes. And when I say you, I mean the part of you that only thinks about you. And it was like this light kicked on in my head, and I went, I have been, I've been asking what did I do wrong? What is, is this my punishment for something I did wrong? And going back and racking my brain every day, what did I do wrong? Did I miss God doing something here? Did I, did, was I disobedient? Did I go left when I should have went right? Or what all those crazy questions Christians ask themselves when they're in a situation they don't want to be in? And I just said, maybe since God has led me here, maybe there's something he wants me to do here. Over the course of time, I had spent several hours talking to the girl that was in my cubicle um, about the Lord. 
I work in a technology division of a really big, really big company. And um, a large percentage of the people I work with are from Eastern India. They're Hindu. And I've been slowly talking to her about the gospel just over time and what do you do and wasn't anything I was really trying to do, honestly. I was just answering her questions and stuff. And I should have been better at it, but I wouldn't. I wasn't. And when that realization hit me one day, I went, oh, maybe I should stop hating where God has brought me and start looking around me to figure out who I should be trying to impact. I spent hours, several days a week, telling this young lady about the gospel. Her husband worked at, Aunt, uh, at, at, at the, um, the place we were at, my company. They had a little daughter together. They had, she was like, I'm not, I'm not from Boston, but she was wicked smart, right? Like she was like, <laughs> like she was, uh, you, you'll get it later. Um, she was really smart, like international, like um, a master's degree in international finance smart. Like I can't even spell international finance, right? Like I'm like, okay. Um, really smart. And so she would talk to me different times about the Bible and about the gospel and about um, the stories that were the, of scripture. And one day she ran into the office really quick, threw all of her stuff on the desk, and she goes, I need to talk to you now. And she was in a panic. I was like, okay. So we went to the break room. She sat down with this just panic look on her face, and she goes, I just dropped my daughter off at school. I was like, okay, that's a good thing, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know where we're going here. Just dropped my daughter off at school, okay. I didn't know if I was going to take her today or keep her home because yesterday a note was found at her school um, alleging a bomb threat. It was during a time where there had been several other shootings throughout the country that had made the news and everyone was kind of up in arms and this letter was a warning not to come to the campus because this person knew someone was going to drop off a bomb at the school and it was going to hurt a lot of people. <clears throat> the police were called. They did massive investigations. All the parents were up all night trying to figure out what they were going to do. And she's like, I don't want to live in fear. So I just sent my daughter to school. And I'm like, okay. And she goes, she sat across from this round table in the break room and said, but I want you to tell me something. I said, okay. Is my daughter going to be okay? And I thought this. I didn't say it, thank God. But my first thought was, I didn't write the note. Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, like why, why are you asking me? <clears throat> I didn't say it. I just thought it, you know. It's kind of how my mind works, sorry. So I'm sitting there, and I said, I don't understand. What do you mean? And she goes, I know you talk to God. Some of the things that you have said, I know you talk to God. Is my daughter going to be okay? kind of just something flew out of my mouth real quick and I'm like yeah I think so I'm like, oh, what, why did I say that <laughs> I kind of felt it inside of me but I know I, yeah I, I think she's going to be okay she goes okay tell me what's going on before she can get the story out her phone drink her phone rings this is my friend at the school the police are announcing the results of their investigation right now to see if we need to come pick up our kids 
She ran outside. That was a long three minutes for me. <laughs> she walked back in with this relieved look on her face and said they just concluded an investigation and they realized that it's a hoax. Everyone's going to be fine. She looked at me and said, thank you. Every week after that until the time she ended her tenure there and moved on, she came and asked me, will you tell me more stories from the Bible? And I said, absolutely, but you kind of seem like you, got them, you want them for a reason. Why do you want them? And she goes, I go home and tell my daughter the stories that you tell me from Scripture. Here I am in a place I hate and don't want to be, and I'm kicking and screaming. Why did you take me here? This is in the opposite direction of my purpose. And God says, I put you here on purpose, for a purpose, to accomplish his purpose, not mine. The girl that I just kind of would talk to and wasn't rude, but just kind of stayed, you know, whatever, with was taking the gospel message. A Hindu girl took the gospel message to her daughter and translated and, and, and passed along the scriptures to her. Did it end with a big old salvation? We had an altar call and we all wept and now she's in the ministry somewhere? Nope. But my small role was planting a seed that God will send someone else to water and someone else to harvest. I know from personal experience and as a man who had to repent before God for hating where I was to say, you know what? It's a larger purpose being accomplished past the point of my current situation. I want to remind you a couple things in your notes that you can take home with you. Ready? God is the master architect. God is the master creator. God is the master designer. He is weaving a beautiful tapestry with the threads of your life. Only our all-knowing, all-powerful God could so perfectly design our purpose into a greater design of His eternal purpose. He's the only one who can take every flaw, everything that we have, and still weave it into a perfect masterpiece of His will that will be accomplished. <clears throat> so, if you're in one of those spots, last line of your notes is my challenge for you. We must stop complaining about our current situation and realize our great God has put us here on purpose, for a purpose, to accomplish His purpose.